Welcome back to another episode of Authentic Influence. I'm your host, Adam Connor. Thank you once again for tuning into the show. Hope you're staying safe. If you're new and staying safe, then here's what the show is all about. Authentic Influence is about brands who are mobilizing their masses and becoming more authentic through using the voices of their consumers. And I talk to CMOs and other brand leaders and marketing minds to learn about generally how companies are doing that. Doing this especially well right now are companies in DTC, especially given the current circumstances. So it was a distinct pleasure to be able to talk to somebody who is a brand mind over a DTC practice within a larger legacy CPG. Today, I'm on with Clorox and their VP and GM over DTC, Jackson Janiakum. He's got a lot of experience as a CMO within a direct-to-consumer space. He's also got a ton of different industries of experience within food and bev and on the agency side, a plethora of, of industries, and now is leading the charge at Clorox in a way that I think is different from how other legacy CPGs are handling DTC. I think there's a difference in the proactive and reactive nature of it, and Jackson goes into that. But what I really enjoyed and why this podcast is a little longer than normal is Jackson's perspective on how he navigated his career, not only in what brought him to Clorox, but also in the ways that make him well-rounded. And I specifically ask about two things that I don't really get on other podcasts that I think you'll enjoy too. One, how he draws the difference between being well-rounded and a jack-of-all-trades, and I think there is a fine line there. And then secondly, and towards the end of the interview, I ask him about what pitfalls exist for up-and-comers that would prevent them from becoming big brand executives and leaders. Jackson has obviously been able to navigate his path successfully and today is doing wonderful things for Clorox, and so I can't wait to have you hear the perspective directly from him. So I'll get out of the way, and for now, enjoy today's podcast with, from Clorox, Jackson Janiagam. All right, everybody, I'm here with Clorox, and specifically, Jackson Janiagam. He is their GM over DTC, so I'm obviously really interested in this and I have a lot of questions about it, but first, Jackson, how are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, best as can be. Yeah. So first thing I want to do. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, of course, with with current circumstances and all, <laughs> yeah. being at home doesn't affect the podcast too much. I get to do it virtually. Uh, I moved this week, and so obviously, uh, perfect time to do that. Not, but I'm here in the new setup, and you sound great. But you know, uh, I, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say on that note, Adam. Every time someone says something like that, um, it usually ends up being a joke because they've moved or gone on vacation from their bedroom to their bathroom or the bathroom to the kitchen. So you actually moved <laughs> physically yeah. outside, which is kind of physically and exactly days, so. <laughs> totally. So we're past that now, and now I get to talk to you, which is great. I want to ask about. A ton of stuff, specifically, we'll get into it in a second, DTC and how Clorox approaches it. I don't, it, it's not, it wasn't intuitive to me, uh, I guess, a while back to associate the two, being a legacy CPG and a DTC practice. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we've talked a little bit before this, I understand better, but I want you to enlighten for me. Let us take a step back. Because given your expertise in this area and the fact that Clorox was able to pull you in, it makes me wonder how. So specifically, would love to know a little bit more about your uh, journey to get here. I know that it involves CMO tenures elsewhere and experience in direct commerce, but why don't you enlighten a little bit how Clorox came a knocking? <clears throat> yeah, so um, I was in a CMO role at Boxed, um, an e-commerce startup in New York. 
I'd been there a little over two years. Um, and if you don't know it, their business premise was essentially shipping bulk goods to your door within two days, uh, particularly relevant right now. Uh, but imagine they launched in 2013 before Costco had really started to, to, to delve into e-commerce and really as very right before Instacart really scaled. So it was Costco in your pocket. That was a message. So it's a pretty cool model. Uh, they were definitely part of that, you know, phase 1B of TDC companies, um, great investors, uh, Cool Vision, Garage founders uh, who had started a company before. Um, so I was there for two and a half years leading all things growth, top line revenue, of course, marketing, creative, loyalty, uh, retention, um, part of analytics, and then um, data line um, roles with uh, all the functions, uh, product, data science, and so forth. Um, so it was a great, great experience. I loved it. I loved starting startup world. Before that, I was Chipotle, had a digital um, in New York uh, as well. Um, you know, I, I was there before the food crisis, during and after. So while it was less than ideal for many of us, um, great experience. I learned a lot. Um, ultimately, I left um, for the box role, which was a great opportunity. And then before that, um, just to quickly wrap it up, a 15 years of agency experience between Portland, Seattle, and New York. Um, a lot of uh, PR, digital, social content, um, mainly Fortune 500 clients, T-Mobile, uh, PNG specifically, Old Spice, Diageo, uh, NASCAR, so forth. So you said NASCAR, nice. Yeah, I'm a big, yeah. Fan. I'm, I'm a big fan of the sport. Not a lot of podcast fans or listeners to this know that. Oh, but that's a little bit of trivia. I just, that was almost reactionary. Oh, wow, great. Cool. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I could tell it was very genuine. So happy to chat with you about that. I have a lot of friends over there still. Great, great, uh, great folks. Um, uh, really yeah, interesting sport. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Happy to make those intros. Um, so, uh, you know, when Clorox reached out, uh, I'll be honest, Adam, I wasn't uh, interested in going to a big CPG, as you kind of alluded to, you know, working at, at Chipotle, which is like a startup, even though it's Fortune 500, it acted and operated like a startup, which I loved and had that great brand that people loved. Um, so I really wasn't thinking about a big CPG. And I worked with a lot of CPGs as clients or um, at Boxed, um, you know, since CPGs fulfilled, we, we bought from CPGs, so they gave us um, all, all the products to sell. So I was looking at mainly startups and, and other, you know, largely scaled startups um, for, you know, pretty, pretty cool roles. But somewhere in that search and, and as I was talking to a lot of companies, some continued to, you know, we have conversations, others, you know, they'd uh, already moved in a uh, different direction, different candidates. Um, I just wasn't feeling as excited, you know, Adam, I wasn't like loving, you know, the roles. It just felt like the same kind of role. I'm like maybe I need to think about this differently. It was a really good market. Um, I felt like I, I had the opportunity to take my time. I was still at Boxed, so I wasn't in a rush. Um, my wife and I were, you know, we we're starting to plan around um, number two, actually. Uh, so there was all these life changes happening. Um, and, and then, um, you know, she, I was talking about all the CEOs and, and managers I've worked for. And uh, she's like, maybe it's time for you should be your own CEO. You know, you, you have all these great experiences of things you like, things you didn't like, probably uh, more so. Maybe it's time that you go on that path. And um, and then Clorox reached out, recruiter reached out, and, and literally within a couple of weeks of that conversation, pitched me in this GM role at Clorox to run D to C, to build and run it. And I'm like, huh. Uh, and at first, again, it was Clorox. I'm like, I don't know. They're going to be slow. Like, you know, I, I know exactly what CBGs are like. But it gives, gets me on the right path. I learned from some of the best. I mean, Clorox, P&G, J&J, these companies are known to train great CEO and management skills, right? Like a lot of the CEOs, there's a list from Forbes that came out recently, like six months ago, I think, or a year ago, um, that said of the, you know, all the CEOs out there based on LinkedIn and based on research of Fortune 500 companies, um, there's like 15 companies essentially that produce the most amount of them. I mean, it's it's an over-index and, and Clorox is on the list, was number six actually. So for all those reasons, I'm like, you know, maybe it's, Try, I got to try something different. You know, I can't be afraid. I got to take risks. You know, my whole career, I've taken risks, tried different things, and it's worked out for me. So, you know, this felt like one of those, even though Clorox wasn't risky necessarily. And 
yeah, that's uh, they pitched me on it. It was a GM track. My manager, you know, it's all about the manager. Even if you're at a very senior level, right? It's who you report to. Are they going to give you the autonomy, the freedom with the right framework? Are they going to go to bat for you when you need them to? Um, you know, I'm not a junior person, so I don't need um, his guidance on day-to-day things. I don't need him to go to bat for me on day-to-day things. But on certain things, there's absolutely I need that support. And I need that framework. Um, but Willie allowed me to uh, uh, operate autonomously, and and he checked the box on all of those when we met for breakfast in New York. Um, and then I met with the team, and they moved so fast. I mean, interview process is also another indicator of how the company will be. And I suspected Clorox, as you can imagine, would take three months, be 50 people. uh, And he moved that thing. I mean, it was five people in two days. Meanwhile, I was interviewing with another startup. Yeah, I was interviewing with another startup. It's part of an incubator model. Uh, It was pre-revenue to be CEO. And I'm not going to BS you here, Adam. 22 interviews. Now, some of them are group interviews. So let's say it was like 13 meetings with 22 people. 22 yeah. people. And, and one of those meetings was That three. sounds like probably more than like the, the size of the company was. Oh, I mean, the company was three people. So it was a, it was an incubator. So it was mm. part of a studio. So you're yeah, meeting sure. with all the other studio peeps and other, you know, investors and the the guys, they all came from VC or, or hedge fund or private equity and they, they started this. So um, it was their baby and they had a few other brands in there and I get it. Um, you know, a couple of those meetings were the same person three different times, but it's exactly what I would have thought Clorox would have been like. And Clorox moved like a startup. So, you know, stereotypes, perception, you never know until you actually go through it. So I always advise that to people like, hey, don't don't assume. And I didn't assume. And I'll tell you, Adam, like, it's been the best decision I made. I mean, I've been there a year and three months, and it's been a wonderful experience for so many reasons. Yeah, I, that's great that you note the organizational strength, not just the fact that it's an incredible pedigree, as, as I didn't know either, being on that top list, but also to know that it moved really efficiently. Um, yeah, between you and me and everybody listening to this, you're, you're right. I, I would not have assumed <laughs> that Clor- when I think of a Clorox or any other big CPG, I think, okay, yeah. it's large, it's bureaucratic, yep. it takes forever to do, I don't know, anything, yep. which is also kind of why I have been grading against, okay, well, they got a DTC thing, but like I've talked to all these other DTCs and they're like, they get stuff done within the hour. I wonder what this Jackson guy's all about. So um, that's the next thing that, that I got to ask about because I understand, as I've seen you across a bunch of media, and I just think that you come from this background where you know how to do it. It's maybe that and the stereotype uh, associated with big CPGs that don't know how to do it that made me wonder, like, how How's must work? Clorox be approaching <laughs> this differently yeah. from like other, I don't know, CPGs, could be legacy CPGs, whatever. And I know that we talked about this a little bit before this and, and, and how like sort of acquisitions are made or how you're doing it organically, proactive, mm-hmm. reactive. I, can, can you help enlighten the audience on that? Because I got to say, like from a 50,000 foot view, it just like doesn't mesh. But yeah. You, you're making it mesh. A so lot, A lot of people how? have said that to me, especially people who know me, worked with me, have all said the same thing. Um, and, and I'll be honest, as I recruit, I've recruited quite a few people now since I've started maybe 12 or 15 people and have a bunch of open recs now and will continue to be. And I'm, I'm recruiting mainly from a lot of D2C and e-commerce companies. So I get right. this question all the time. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll go back half a step to the Clorox, like how and what. So... Um, when Clorox, so most CPGs, as we've talked about, Adam, when they want to go into DDC and they're trying to figure out the easiest, first way to do it is acquisition, right? Um, Unilever Dollar Shave, uh, Schick tried to buy Harry's. Um, I mean, it's across the, the board. I think Kellogg's bought a couple of them. General Mills has bought a couple of them. It's just acquisition, right? Inherit the team, inherit the talent. Um, they're probably not even thinking about the technology at the level they should be, but that's what they're thinking about. And then they hope they can incentivize the leadership, the core team to stay, right, for two or three years while they figure it out. That's the, that's the biggest reason because cash flow is not the issue. 
most large CPGs. Um, in some cases, um, you know, they do try to build it from scratch with nothing, with no inherent like foundation. And and I, I, I don't know if I've seen that be successful at scale anywhere um, in any large CPGs from what I can tell. Um, startups, yes, startup CPGs for sure, but not the established ones. And then in other cases, you'll see them take uh, like a, a, an investment track, right? Like a, like a portfolio approach where they invest. This is happening probably more common, right? Like incubator stage or they bring in startups to learn from. Maybe they'll give them a little seed money, help them connect to other retailers, or they'll just take a, you know, lead around as a strategic and take a seat on the board, right? Um, so we, well, not we without love. 15 interviews first, right? <laughs> Touche. Uh, so, you know, at, at Box, I experienced that too with certain strategics. You know, of course, I've seen and heard that from others. So that's that's pretty common as well, right? It's kind of dipping your toe in the water without departing with a lot of cash. It's very low risk for them um, and they get to learn. Um, I'd argue, you know, that's good. It's great experience. And it's one step further from like a conference and or reading a white paper or going to like, you know, an MBA program on it. Like, it's great. You're learning, but it's never the same as you know, Adam is operating. Like there's nothing like a great operator um, and, and having a team of operators. And yes, you can inherit them by acquiring them, but we also know how that works. If you've been in startup your whole life or that you, you, you were born to do a startup, you get acquired by a large CPG. I mean, that transition can be brutal. And oftentimes you see most of those people leave within two or three years after the exit period, right? Um, it just, it's just a very common thing. So what Clorox had, what happened in Clorox, a little bit of happenstance, a little bit of a strategic um, direction and a, a little bit of great timing. So they acquired Nutrinex, which was a health and wellness supplements brand. They already had uh, Renew Life. They already have some wellness brands and Burt's Bees and Brita, which most people don't know. I can't remember if you knew if they had Burt's Bees and Brita, but they do. I didn't. Yeah. And, and it's actually a great selling point because those are cool, iconic brands. Um, so they were investing in wellness. The CEO, Benno, um, he really believes in the category, which is awesome. Um, and then they bought Nutrinex out of Florida, which has Rainbow Light, NeoCell, Natural Vitality. Um, you'll see these in Whole Foods, Costco. Rainbow Light's a big prenatal uh, uh, supplement. My wife took it, actually, when she was pregnant. It's one of the top ones. They also do a multi. NeoCell's collagen, which has been blowing up, and Natural Vitality's Calm, Magnesium, Gummies, um, and Powders, which is also blowing up. So within that portfolio, 25% of their business, essentially, was also this small DDT company. Um, it's a trifecta of brands targeting boomers. Um, you wouldn't even know their sites like Stop Aging Now, True Health, Plus Herbs, um, not household names. I didn't know who they were. And uh, they knew they had this DTC property um, and they knew they wanted to evolve and grow it. Um, and they're like, hey, how, how do we do this right without messing it up? We have something here. While it's small and it wasn't maybe the primary reason they bought Nutrix, it was a big kind of complimentary like, oh, this is nice. We have this DTC platform. We know this is the future. Let's invest in it. Um, and the first thing they decided to do is, you know, put my boss in charge of the whole overall Nutrix acquisition. And then he went and determined. I need to go hire from outside uh, someone who comes from D2C startup, probably with a marketing background. Um, and I think they went on search and found me. So the, the thinking was already fundamentally different than all of those scenarios that we talked about. The second piece was clearly recruiting someone like me and other people like me, I'm sure they talked to. And, and I think it was Michael, my boss. I mean, I can't stress that enough. If I had met with maybe other people um, and I've met with enough CPG execs to know, it would have looked and sounded like what I, you and I expected. And, and he is nothing like that. You know, he's been there for 30 years, sits on the executive committee, uh, knows how to get stuff done. Uh, but he is a classic operator. I mean, the guy in a different life must have been the startup founder and or a VC. I mean, he's just, he already invests on the side. Like he, he gets it. So that was the, the rub. And then, you know, when they, when they brought me in, it was like, hey, we, we know there's something here. We know it's not working the way it is currently. Um, it's in decline. Like help us figure this out. There's something here um, and we want to expand and grow it. But, you know, it's up to you, essentially. Where it wasn't like, hey, do it this way and this way and this way, because then you would have been right back at that CBG mode. So 
And then if you take a step back, what you said about me, I am, I like to, I talk fast. I like to move fast agency life while they're not operators. Most New York agency people I know move very, very fast. Um, especially if they're in digital and then Chipotle, we move fast too. Not as fast as a startup, but we move fast. And then box, I mean, it was a hundred miles an hour and I loved it. I love the pace. I love executing. I hate bureaucracy. I hate administrative crap. I hate getting like titles and territories and like my personal bonus target again, the way of running an awesome business. I genuinely just despise it. Um, and I, I mentioned that to him. I'm like, Hey, I do not want to come in here and deal with these. Like, well, listen, you're going to have to deal with it to some extent. It's going to be a good skill set for you, especially when you want to be a CEO, no matter where you go, if you want to deal with investors, board members, small or big, if you want to go IPO, you're going to have to deal with that. So it's important that you really refine that. However, I will help limit that exposure and I'll help you manage it and you can focus on operating and building a great team and building a great business. I'm like, that's those are both good points, right? No matter what you do, no matter what yeah. startup founder, you're going to have to deal with some of that, right? Um, I don't care if you're a company of two, company of a thousand, uh, about to go IPO tomorrow and ring the bell. So um, I'm like, you're right. I need it. Clorox is great in the resume. It rounds me out. Agency, Chipotle, Box. I have this great CBG that's well-respected. Now I have options and I believe in life, especially with your career, just give yourself options. Make wise, smart choices with some risk. So you have options, and I don't ever want to be a guy who's only done CBG, who's only done tech, who's only done QSR and food, um, who's only done agency. I wanted to say, okay, I can do startup, I can do big company, I can do medium company, I can do agency, I can do CBG, I can do NASCAR and sports, I can do food right. and beverage, you know, I can do e-com and DTC. I wanted that variety, right? I want to be able to be well-rounded. So um, the opportunity for himself, he presented the opportunity, and then when I came in, um, now listen, it's been a year since I officially took over in March, two months of transitioning the, the owner of the, of that company out, um, which they had already planned for when I came in. So about a year exactly. Um, and there's been a lot of learning curve. Um, I've broken a lot of things and I believe I have to, and that's kind of the job and I like it. I've definitely probably ruffled some feathers, but I think in a good way, um, there's definitely been some rubs, small things that, you know, I won't bore you with, but you'd be like, wow, really? Like that seems so simple. And to me it would have been, and it wasn't. And that's not because Clark's trying to make it more difficult for me. Just that's the way they've done things a certain way, even though, you know, my opinion, it didn't need to be done that way. And, and it was not possible for the people I was hiring. So in other ways, some of that stuff really helps. I mean, I would tell you right now in the D2C world, I mean, I see it. I have a lot of friends both on the investor side and the operating side. I mean, they're struggling, you know, not and this is pre-COVID, but even during COVID, um, especially during COVID, but pre there was a trend in DTC, high growth companies with no profit, a brandless story, you know, other startups were struggling and being challenged. The checks were getting smaller. There was no big checks just because you had 100% year-over-year growth and no profit. Um, unit economics on e-commerce in particular in DTC is very difficult, especially if you're shipping CPG. Um, and then you're into a recession, which everyone was expecting. Obviously, it happened a little bit sooner than we thought. And now the checks are starting to harder, be harder to come by, especially if you don't have like 20 and 20, 20% growth, 20% profitability, which a lot of the DDC startups at least don't. So there's a whole shift. And then marketing in DDC is much more complicated, much more competitive, much more expensive, higher CPMs, higher um, uh, competition for the same people, big brands spending big money in performance marketing. Um, and you have this whole shift of omni-channel, you know, above the line, retail being important, TV being important, sampling and influencers being important. So now you have what's old is new, what's new is old happening. So, you know, to be in a pure play DDC startup doesn't mean you can't do it. It's, it's actually much easier, I'd argue, pre-COVID to get up and running than ever before. However, to get to scale is much harder than ever before. The days of the Warby Parker, Birchboxes, um, Airbnbs, post-recession, 2008, that's not going to happen anymore. So at least not at that rapid rate. So now you have this kind of um, purgatory if you're a startup at a certain size where there's no more checks, you're burning money, um, and, and you don't have a way out, right? And IPO is clearly not the path because we've seen that with some other startups. So long story short, 
Clorox wallet has all these complications and I've broken a lot of things. And I ruffled some feathers and, and I've fixed some things too. I think, I think I've helped, helped some things. It is also very nice to be backed by a great VC in Clorox that has cash flow. I'm not fundraising uh, every three or four months. Um, I don't have to worry about stability for now, right? Everyone has to worry about stability to some extent, but relatively speaking, I feel very good and stable with Clorox as a company. Um, and, and we get freedom to run it like a startup within it. So my team built a custom tech stack in four months um, so that we can get all the DDC brands off of the Magentos and Shopify's onto the custom tech stack flowing into Snowflake, one data warehouse so we can maximize the data. That's across a dozen brands hopefully in the next year or so, but the stack had to get built. It's still in MVP mode, but we're building it. Um, I had to hire people from Brandless, Jet, Plated, Amazon, Talkspace, uh, Bonobos, you know, the best of the best. Um, and that wasn't easy. That took a lot of convincing um, and really articulating the vision, what we're trying to do. You know, to me, I want to, this to be a case study when I come talk to people like you and explain what we inherited, what we did, and then what the results were. Um, yeah. and, and that was really where I think the opportunity presented itself for folks is I had to get them to buy into the vision that, hey, it's Clorox, just like you said. However, there's a huge opportunity in wellness, not just supplements and wellness, and to reinvent a 100-year-old CPG um, and how they go to market, how they think about data, and how they think about retail um, in a way that no one else is doing it. So this could be a Wall Street Journal story. This could be an amazing personal achievement that you have, and you'll get to build something. And by the way, you'll be in a very stable, amazing, growing environment where it's not like you're not going to get compensated either. It's not paper equity. These are real stocks, real bonuses, real comps. So there was a lot of pros there, uh, and it just took a leap of faith in you know, hopefully my vision and what they saw and but more importantly the vision of clorox to really invest in this area so i i rambled there for five minutes but hopefully that gives you a little bit of insight into that 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 uh contradiction or paradox that you know <laughs> you asked about yeah it does and i want to talk for a, a second and, and i'm going to do it in the next question after this upcoming one about how you have instilled the same principles that DTCs use with regard to connecting directly and authentically with their customers and how mm -hmm. you apply that to a large CPG, which I don't know if they necessarily know how to do that historically, though, given the differences between how you're approaching DTC and how other major or legacy CPGs might. I, I feel like you are figuring that out and I want to learn about that. But first, I'm going to ask a question which is related to what you decided when going to Clorox as a matter of being well-rounded. Because you've noted now that you've been able to hop across many different industries, uh, you know, different seniority levels, obviously, as you've grown in your in the trajectory of your career. How what do you think makes the difference between? And uh, this is sort of a, maybe a more a philosophical question, and, and listeners, this is more just a, a professional growth question. How do you balance that will and desire to be well rounded and making good risks against the risk of? becoming a more jack of all trades. Like I know a little bit about sports, yeah. I know a little bit about being in an agency. I know a little bit about DDC, a little bit about food service. You know, how, I mean, is it in the risks that you take or is it a bit within being prominent within those individual opportunities? How, how do you balance that? Seriously. Yeah, it's hard. And, and I talked to a lot of people. I love this category. I love, uh, I, first off, I love the idea of career mapping, uh, networking. I always respond to junior folks, especially kids out of college who ask me for advice or to network. I just believe in paying it forward. So I love this topic. I feel like I would have been like a, you know, a consultant and uh, recruiting or chief people officer in a, diff a different uh, life. Hey, um, if you want to keep being well-rounded, you might end up doing that. Hey, you never know, right? I actually believe yeah, that's right. one of the most, un most under- uh, valued most important functions in these next five, 10 years. If you look at everything that's happening with WeWork and what happened with Uber a few years ago, Travis and general workspace like themes and trends, I think 
chief people officer is no longer just someone who manages benefits in a recruiting team. I think it's a very strategic, instrumental role um, in a company, startup and big. And I think uh, big companies get that. I don't know if startups do. So I, I genuinely think this whole thing is a very, very interesting area. So I, it's a tough one, man. I, I will say, you know, it is a balance. Um, I believe you need a niche to create a differentiation position. If I just, if I was a brand marketer, Adam, who just bought TV and out of home for 15 years, um, and I was really good at it, it wouldn't matter. I could be the best. I could be the worst. I'd probably be able to get pretty good jobs, right? Um, but I wouldn't stand out. I would be one of a bunch of other people. So one, I've always believed in differentiating yourself. Like if everyone's going left, you go right. Um, now, some of this is gut. Some of this is risk. Some of this is just taking a chance. Um, like I went, this happened to me three or four different times. When P, I got bored of PR in my first year, I was like, this sucks. I hate it. Um, I value it now and I value the function, but I hated what I was doing. It was traditional PR pitching. It was 2001, working on Microsoft. I landed, I fell, fell into it, but it was an opportunity, right? Part falling into it, part seizing the opportunity in front of you when you are falling into it, right? It was an opportunity to work on tech blogs, working with Engadget, Gizmodo. This is before they were big. This is right when they launched. I was working with the founders of Engadget, Gizmodo, Crunchgear, guys I'm still connected to today on social media. Um, but no one knew who they were. No one gave them the time of day. And my client, she actually was one of the few uh, pioneers that saw the value in that. And I leaned into it. I'm like, oh, this, these tech blogs are really cool. It's really interesting. I'm into this. So that was the first where, place where I was like, oh, I was doing something that no one else in the agency was doing. And then as they blew up, I kind of created my own little niche. But I used that niche to then learn and get my foot in the door and so I can learn about new business pitching, so I can learn about other clients, I can learn about storytelling, I can learn about um, traditional PR, I can learn about pitching New York Times and Wall Street Journal, which no one was going to give me that chance as a 22-year-old out of college. So, you know, I use that niche to kind of create um, a seat at the table for myself and make myself indispensable. I always believe make yourself indispensable, but then, <laughs> this is going to be weird, as you get into a management phase, make yourself indispensable in many ways and then replace yourself. Because that is the best thing you can do. Find a team, build a team, people that complement you who are better than you in many ways and build them up. So you are replaceable in that role, but you're indispensable in other ways as a leader, as a manager, as your, your functional expertise. So it, it is a balance and it is contradictory. I get that. But um, you know, you, you got to get confidence in yourself and your ability to do the work and you have to be okay with letting go of certain things. Um, so that's the first piece. Once you do have that niche, you know, I switched to digital marketing pretty quickly from blogging, social media, digital marketing. I worked on T-Mobile because I saw the opportunity to me for me to run a big part of their business um, on the agency side, and I launched them on Twitter. I launched them on Wikipedia, really early days. Um, on MySpace, that was a fail. We, we did some really just dumb ideas that did, did not execute well. Uh, in 2004, 2005, then Paris Hilton got her psychic hack. Learned a lot from there. Uh, from that, moved to New York um, in a recession. So if you remember the mortgage crisis of late 2008, I moved in 2008 July with the recession like upon us. Uh, but it wasn't there yet. Uh, but it was starting to feel a little tight. Then in 2009, in February, like in the like the heart of the recession in New York, uh, five months in, I left my job of nine years and went to a new company. And my parents thought I was crazy. I was working on T-Mobile. It was blowing up. They loved me. I was bored as all could be. Um, I knew I needed CPG experience because I did not want to be a tech guy at an agency. I knew if I did this for five more years, I would, I would never get another job. I would just be a tech guy in an agency. And I, I'm so terrified of being just that one trick pony, so to speak. So I forced myself, I found her job that came working, working at Old Spice PNG at an influencer marketing agency in New York. But because of the time they said, Hey, here's your salary, but everyone right now is a 10% pay cut. Um, so we have to give your salary minus 10% for the time being. And we're doing this to avoid layoffs. Now, most people, when I told that story at the time, my parents, close friends, like, 
dude, you, you're crazy. Like you're, you're, you know, I was like, it was like $110,000 salary. So it wasn't like $30,000 salary wasn't the top earner, but they were like, Hey, if you go there with this cut, obviously the next thing they're going to do if things get worse is layoffs, right? That's the first thing is the cut of the salary. Second thing is layoffs and you're brand new and you're not a cheap salary per se. Um, you're in trouble. It's a hundred person firm. I'm like, yeah, but I got to do this. I'm, I'm so unhappy. I know I'm in New York. I know I don't have like a lot of cash reserve, but I'm so unhappy. I need a change. This is a good opportunity. I trust the people there. And most importantly, Adam, I trust myself. I trust my ability to figure it out, to adapt, to evolve. If something changes, something doesn't work, I will be on. I'll work harder than everyone else. I will go get shit done. I will make myself indispensable to the client as long as we have the client. And if the client fires us, I'll go find another client and make myself indispensable to them. I'll do everything again for the agency so that if they have to choose between me and someone who makes less than me, that's what it comes down to. That they're gonna, It's going to be a very hard decision. So. That's what I did. And I did it for a year. I didn't get fired. Um, things got better. Um, it was the best thing I could have done because six months later, the Old Spice campaign happened. The, the Smell Like a Man campaign, 200 videos right. in two days. Wyatt and Kenny came up with the creative. We led the social media influencer side, the PR side of it, um, some of the online um, messaging and management of communications. Um, so we played a small role in that, but two days of 35 hours of, of work and the most amazing experience, most amazing learning I could have had. And then that propelled my career into digital. Uh, I then went to another agency for five years, digital marketing. Um, I didn't want to go to an agency. Um, I wanted to go in-house, but I could not get an in-house job after 10 years of agency. Um, and this agency gave me an opportunity to run and build a whole team from scratch, which I'd never done before. It gave me a chance to work on now clients like Diageo, NASCAR, Allstate, Capital One, um, uh, Jordan Brand. So sports, entertainment, properties, music, um, and much broader than just CPG and tech. So while um, it was agency and I was really worried about that, um, it was a broader role. It was a bigger role. It was in 2010. So digital marketing was just becoming the thing. So it was, it was timely and they paid me well. And I was like, okay, let me do it. And let me just keep looking for a full-time role in-house. I did it for four and a half years. Great experience. Loved it. Had my ups and downs, but loved it. And then because of that role, um, I got lucky and Chipotle came calling. Um, and, and to be clear, the Chipotle thing, they didn't like knock down my door. I chased them down on LinkedIn. I found the recruiter, posted the role. Apparently, she had 1,500 applicants for the head of digital role. I found her. I, I sent her a blanket note. She responded, added me, um, and then went radio sign. Said, she's great. I'll send your note along. I never heard from her again. Then two months later, or like a month later, uh, I got antsy. I found the hiring manager. Luckily, they only had one title. Uh, I dropped him a note on LinkedIn. Um, he added me, luckily. I dropped him a note, a long note why I was best qualified. He never responded. Two and a half months later, another recruiter called me. Uh, and then said, hey, we want to invite you to the first round of interviews. Um, and then the rest was, was history. But I found out later it was a hiring manager who got my note. He didn't even know he didn't respond. He shared it. Um, so to be clear, I, they didn't come calling like proactively. I, I, I found them and I hustled my way into it. And then I, then I was able to get the job. But point being is I got lucky and, and I hustled. But it was 15 years of agency. I was really worried that I'm not going to get an in-house job. Uh, but it took taking risks. It took focusing on a niche and expanding upon that niche then seeing the currents and, and swimming with it and then just jumping in. And and by the way, some of these other decisions I'm not talking about didn't pan out or some little things I, I decided on weren't as ideal. Um, and, you know, it was also luck. Some other roles I really wanted, I didn't get. And I thought it was the end of the world at the time. And now I look back and like, man, I'm so happy I didn't get those roles for many different reasons. Um, so, yeah, so I can go on. And I mean, Chipotle didn't let the box. That was a little bit more of a clear transition. But, you know, the, that those are that's what made me, man. Like, I, I will be very clear like that. That shift from PR to social, that risk of going to New York, uh, right before a recession and leaving a job in the middle of the recession and then hustling my way on LinkedIn, which I still do. All my jobs have been through LinkedIn, every single one. Um, 
those are the three or four themes that for me and my career that have been important. <clears throat> really, really important. Forget title, forget speaking engagements, all that stuff. Yeah, that's great. That's important. But it's this is the stuff. That's when you make or break. And of course, you got to do the job, right? You can't just go in there and just, you know, take a day off. Like I got to hustle and have a good reputation and build a team and build rapport and build trust in my team and be a good leader and have a good reputation. And people, when they back channel all my references, because that's what everyone does nowadays, they back channel your reference. They don't take the names you give them. They go around. You want to have a good reputation, even with people you let go, even with people you've disagreed with. Um, so I've always tried to be kind and empathetic and very, very direct and transparent. So you know where you stand with me, even if we don't agree. Right. Well, I appreciate that, you know, good answer, like extensive answer. I, I learned, well, I learned so much right there and it's because I'm relatively early in my career. So mm-hmm. listeners, I, I hope you're hearing this from somebody who has gotten all this experience and who has uh, now elevated themselves to role and, and done so proactively. You know, that opportunity does just fall out of the sky all the time. And I've, I've had to remind myself of that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's really special. So I, I thank, thank you, you for that. Yeah, I, thank I you. do. I do want to, um, I do want to ask, I want, I want to shift gears a little bit and I only have two more questions really. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the ways and to get back to what I was, had previewed before, what are some of the ways and maybe right now, but maybe broadly and generally, regardless of timeline, how you are instilling that notion that DTCs are really good at of connecting with consumers directly and authentically and how are you applying it to a major CPG. It seems like you have control of the whole ship and you're building everything custom. So you are able to do this the way you know how, but I'm just wondering some of the ways in which you are doing it through the lens of Clorox. Is it all wellness focused? Is it something else? What are the ways that you're maybe harnessing the journeys that people have in purchasing products through, you know, through your umbrella? Yeah. Great great question. So there's two pieces. Foundationally, Clorox is very much aligned with what I, I think and what you think and what I think the best DTC companies are. It's consumer first. Everyone says that, but they truly do believe in the consumer experience, whether even if that's at retail or you know outside in the marketing world, but they do believe in the consumer, understanding them, knowing them, speaking to them genuinely, authentically, like real people uh, and not like a number. So fundamentally, that foundation, we're very much aligned there. So that makes it easy. Um, how we do it, obviously, clearly very different. Uh, but because they understand foundationally what that means, they appreciate and love and respect what we do on D2C with data, with technology, with go-to-market, how fast we move. So there's a mutual respect there and understanding that they want to evolve that and get there. Now, how we do it, that's always hard, right? That, that's the rub uh, to then execute. Like it's, it, change, it requires a lot of change in thinking, change in mindset, change in you know, platforms and solutions, everything, right? The type of talent. Uh, you would train and and bring in. Uh, so, but found, fund, fundamentally, we're on the same page, 100%. So that that's a big one. The second piece, though, is um, you know you mentioned control of the ship, but you know I'd argue the best captains don't think of it that way, and, and probably don't even have true control, right? Just like with your consumers, you know, I read this article Harvard Business Review a couple of days ago. It's like it's not direct consumer, it's direct with consumer. That's the that's a shift, and they talk about why, why, and they, and they outline everything, kind of what I talked about, but in much more detail. This shift, you should check it out if you get a chance, uh, Connor, but. What was really, re, re, Adam, what was really interesting was, you know, they they talk about like, hey, direct consumer, the modern day and the future, D2C is really building your brand with your consumer in mind, right? To your point about authentic um, relationships, having their insight, getting them to be a part of your brand through focus groups, sure, that's old school, but through surveys, through ro- ro- unique loyalty and rewards programs that were then incentivized to give ideas for new products, social media clearly, uh, influencers another way, ambassadors and so forth. So talks about this new day and age with data, 
how you leverage it, not to just retarget them and get more revenue, but to really build it with them in mind. That goes back to also what cause you stand for. Do you stand for something that's more than just giving 2% of your profit to some, some charity, right? Everyone does that, and that's great, but you can do much more. Allbirds and Everlane, two of my favorite examples of truly transforming their business through a, a cause that people care about, right? And it's not about being red or blue uh, or anything like that, anything political. It's really just a cause that we, we care about as a brand, and we hope that you care about it too as our customers. So I would say that is where the real opportunity is, and that is what I'm trying to build with our wellness brand. So yeah, while I am leading D2C, it is very, very much, and I want it to be a very collaborative process with all the key functional stakeholders across marketing, PM, operations, supply chain, technology, and, and truthfully, I need them, right? There's no way for me to do what I need to do at Clorox without them. Now, we might disagree on how we do and how fast to move, and, and that's part of change management. Right? I'm trying to change things. If I wanted a job, you know, I just go in and, and everything's great. Um, and I run it day to day, like it's been run. That's great, but it's probably less rewarding. This thing is going to be painful at times, but it's going to be the most rewarding thing if we do it. You know, they say like, um, calm seas don't make for good captains. If you've heard that quote, Adam. So like, that's, no, this is, uh, it's a great, it's my favorite. So basically the best captains, they don't become the best captains because they've always had calm waters. They become it because they deal with tension and stress and like bad moments and scary moments. Right. And, I, and I've, I've had plenty of those but not in this kind of role. My, my other ones have been in crisis management or like, you know, recession, uh, shifting jobs. Now it's like, okay, how do I build this thing within this big behemoth of a company uh, that's done things one way to your point. So that's, I need that experience as much as I might get frustrated at times and they allow me to go fix and try to break things. Um, but I still have to, uh, push and challenge and, and try different ways to influence and try different ways to communicate and make people feel a part of it. So it's not just me, like an acquired company, and that example I mentioned, coming in and saying, this is how you have to do it, because that's not going to get anywhere, right? That's just, I, mean, I have a four-year-old and, and a one-year-old. If I told my four-year-old, you have to do it because I said so, and I try hard not to ever say that, um, that's not going to get me very far. It might get me far for today and tomorrow, but long-term, that's not going to get me very far. So I need to explain to her and educate her. It's no different than with your colleagues, right? In any situation, if you want to influence people, you have to explain to them and articulate like what, what you're trying to do and why, versus just saying, this is how it has to be done because I came from this place and I'm not going to listen to you if you say that, and, and what, you shouldn't listen to me if I say that. So it's just human nature, right, whether you're 4 or 40. So that, that's kind of been my approach is like let's all do this together. Let's build it together, and we'll make compromises. We'll sacrifice some things, and other things we won't. And, and, I'm, and my Clorox counterparts are the same way. They've sacrificed some things, other things they won't, and that's great. We'll figure that out, and we'll adapt and evolve as needed. So it's part of the experience. It's part of the journey. Uh, we haven't figured it out by any means, but we're getting there. Uh, we're already seeing you know, a good shift in growth from the brands I inherited, and we're also starting now to think about Hey, on top of that, uh, where else can we learn and, and, and grow beyond just revenue? Can we learn with innovation? Can we learn with consumer insights based on our ability to go really fast, launch something, an MVP statement, mobile viable product, get the data, and then quickly optimize on it? That's been a really fun experience to share with a lot of my Clorox counterparts, and everyone seems way into it because they are data-driven and, and fundamentally. So, um, yeah, it, we're, we're, we're there. We're getting there, um, and there's a lot more to do, but it's been really awesome to kind of share each other's working ways. And, and that's what I'm excited uh, about this next year. I think actually this next year is the big one um, uh, as we think about what is our evolution in direct consumer. Yeah, for sure. Um, that is, again, thank you for all the detail there. Uh, of course. I, I look forward to seeing what, you know, you guys continue to do and also thank to, you. to continue to lean into what's hard, you know, because that's, and I like that quote too. Could you say that quote again? Yeah, calm seas don't make for good captains. Calm seas don't make for good captains. Maybe that could be your headline for this podcast. When we, uh, yeah, I'm wondering. I'm just, you know, now that I'm ha I'm thinking like calm seas, captain. I'm going to think on that. Thank yeah, you. Uh, cool. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. <laughs> I saw it on a, on, a, on a picture in the background of a wall 
on Walking Dead like three years ago, four years ago. And I love Walking Dead. I'm like, oh my God, someone spotted it. Or, I don't remember how I saw it or my wife saw it. I'm like, that is great. And I quote it, dude, I must quote it like 10 times a month. My team hates me because like, oh, yes, we know it. We know it. But it's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Um, all right. Well, let me wrap up with this. Normally, I ask folks what their best advice is for creating better, more authentic brands. But you've done a lot of that through telling me how you have progressed through your career and sort of the ways in which you've grown. So I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'll ask something like this, because you said just a second ago that saying, do this because I say so will get you through today or tomorrow won't get you through the long term. Are there any other common pitfalls that folks who are trying to navigate and advance through their career could fall into that might limit their ability to create better, more authentic brands? Because mm -hmm. I guess there's probably as many of those as there are good pieces of advice. And frankly, a lot of times I just get know who your consumer is for advice, which is fine. <laughs> you know, that is a good piece of general advice. It's not as actionable as I'd like. Yep. So I'm curious if you know of any like of those common traps that people do because they think it's either authoritative or, 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 or galvanizing or, yeah. uh, or authentic and true, but really just doesn't help. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a big subscriber. I love leadership books, management books. I read them all the time. I just finished the extreme ownership book by the, a couple of Navy SEALs. It's an amazing book uh, about just taking ownership of of you and, and what you're responsible for, even if you're not directly responsible for it. It's just some of it's obvious. That's Jocko's it's book, not. right? Yes, yes, it's great. Yeah. You read it, right? Jocko, Jocko Willing, he's got a great podcast too, folks. Oh, yeah, that's right, he does. Um, so I read that, I just finished that. Uh, Five Levels of Leadership, though, is what I was going to reference, uh, John Maxwell. If you've read that, um, Adam, so it basically gets into read like, another Maxwell book. I don't think it's that one, though. Can you say the title again? Because I'll, I'll write it down here. Yeah, Five Levels of Leadership. So one of his of leadership. core principles, but he, I know he has a few books actually. Um, but essentially it's like the first to fifth level and the fifth level is like insane. Uh, first level is essentially you're, you're by title, you're a VP somewhere. You have authority by title. It means nothing. So sure. People will respond to you out of fear because they have to, but that will not last for many reasons, especially if your company or your group or you hit tough times, if you've led by authority and by title, the first people to turn on you, the first people to, to really, you know, lack of a better term, sell you out with the people that you've walked all over, right? So clearly not the best way. Um, and, he, and his whole thing is ser servant leadership, right? Managers, good managers uh, adapt their style to their direct reports and they're there to serve them, not vice versa. And I couldn't agree more. It is not Mad Men era anymore. It is is the, the notion that CEOs and everyone down are there to serve their employees. And I'd argue employee first, consumer second, because you don't get the employee first down, the consumer experience will, will get impacted. So I actually am a believer of treat employees well, truly, genuinely well, then the consumers will be treated well. And from retail to e-commerce, doesn't matter. Um, so Five Levels Leadership, though, talks about the first level being title, the fifth level being you have now developed such confidence in yourself, self-confidence in yourself, that you've not only created leaders that replace you, that's level four, right? And that's where everyone should aspire to. And a lot of great leaders have done that, right? Every, a, lot of, a lot of examples of that. Jack Welch did that really well. Um, the next level is you created leaders that replace you. Fifth level is those leaders that replace you are now you've instilled such confidence in them that they've now started to build that mindset. They're, they're replacing themselves, right? So it's kind of like this Jedi kind of two layers down that you are now creating. These leaders are creating uh, leaders to replace them. So why this is important and where the pitfalls are is one thing I've seen as people grow in their careers is, is that maybe either lack of confidence or trust where people protect themselves. Oftentimes you see people hire people like them uh, or promote people like them, but maybe less experienced. 
um, maybe be worried about being challenged, especially if they're new to a leadership role in public or being challenged in general. Um, and, and I think that's a little bit of insecurity because they're worried about getting replaced or worried about someone being better than them. When reality is like, you know, I think Job said it, you should be hiring people and you should be around people that know more than you and you hire them for a reason. You hire them for them to do what they do, not for you to tell them what to do. So I think that's all kind of the same theme is like, hey, you got to build a team as you're growing your role and you're building influence of people. You got to be about building something that's bigger than you. And, and that might mean people that are smarter than you and better than you in some ways, maybe getting paid more than you. But if you do it right and you deliver on the business, um, you don't even need to take credit for it. People will know you did it. Um, in almost any decently run organization, you, 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 they will know. And if it is not decently run, you get the experience and then you take it somewhere else. And then th that company will, will respect that. But the point is, what I find is with younger leaders, managers, they are so caught up on their own stuff, their title, their bonus, their credit, um, that they can forget that, hey, um, it's okay to build and hire people around you that are better. It's okay to give credit to your entire team and never say I and always say we. It's okay to you know be challenged by your direct reports uh, as long as it's respectful and, and with empathy. Um, that's actually a really good thing. You want that. So uh, and, and that's how you instill confidence and that's how you replace yourself and that's how you get people uh, that you hire uh, who replace you to replace themselves. So for me, it's all one big theme. There's a lot of pieces there, but that is one of the biggest pitfalls is if you think like that first, you'll figure out everything else. And it's hard. I get it. It's not that easy. And, and I'm not saying you just get confidence in that overnight. But if you generally think with people first and think about how do I how do I manage the business and how do I drive this forward, your title and your own self-interest at heart, actually, the irony is your self-interest will be the first thing that gets rewarded um, because the business would succeed. Um, yeah. I think that's going to be more and more important um, in this new generation of employees coming out, Gen Zs coming out. I think that's what they're going to look for and mandate in their leaders. You will not see an Adam Newman type experience too often anymore. I just don't think you will. There will be no patience for that. No one's going right. to want to put up with that shit. Yep. Understood. Wow. Uh, well, I, I first of all, going to go get that book. Um, <laughs> Enjoy it. You go get it. I'll like link it in the show notes here i guess if i find the link i'll share it with you guys um awesome. and it should be pretty easy to find and uh i appreciate that that's the first time i've asked somebody for like that pitfall advice and i'm glad that you had something great in the in the magazine there, ready to fire because um it uh it, it bears it bears repeating and bears knowing right now and i think you're totally right and by the way it, to go back to something you said earlier i think chief people could be something that you eventually do. At least it sounds like it seems like you care very much about that. Anyway, that's what yeah. makes good team. Thank you. Companies. I appreciate that. I do. Yeah. And I, th I do think it's so important. So for all that, uh, you know, and for talking a little bit about what you're doing at Clorox, I really appreciate the time, Jackson. Thanks so much for joining the show. Yeah, thanks, man. Thank you so much to Jackson Janigan from Clorox for joining the show today. You know, as somebody who is relatively early into my career, it was especially important to hear all of those stories from you on how you progressed through yours. And of course, it was great to hear about how Clorox is navigating with some of its own consumer stories as well. So thank you for joining. If you enjoyed this podcast, you like this show generally, here's what you can do. Of course, stay subscribed wherever you listen. If you're new, subscribe wherever you listen. But we're also on LinkedIn. Authentic Influence Podcast is where we have all of our episodes, it's where we have little tidbits. If we're in the press, if we have uh, interviews coming up, I'll generally preview those there. Later in the year, we'll do some events. So all of that lives there. I encourage you to go follow that page. And you can also follow me, Adam Connor. I'm right there on LinkedIn. Connect with me or the page. Just let me know what you think think about this show. I've had the pleasure of getting a couple of emails recently from people who are either asking about what to do with their own businesses or people suggesting that they come on the show. So if you have an idea for who should be on the show next, of course, 
feel free to reach out to me via those mediums as well. I'll be back again real soon with another fantastic story and a fantastic leader about how that leader and how that brand mobilizes their consumers to become more authentic overall. And until then, for Authentic Influence, I've been your host, Adam Connor, and you'll hear from me again next time.